I'm Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. Today, we're talking with renowned sports nutritionist and exercise physiologist Heidi Skolnick, who has worked with the New York Knicks, Mets, and Giants, as well as with Olympians and athletes from the NHL, MLS, and WNBA. Currently, she oversees the performance nutrition program at the Juilliard School and the School of American Ballet and consults on numerous Broadway shows where she has incorporated a sports nutrition model to help dancers and other artistic athletes to properly fuel their bodies for peak performance. And for us normal folks, Heidi's latest book, The Whole Body Reset, is a New York Times bestseller that shares a nutrition strategy for reversing and preventing age-related weight gain and muscle loss. Hey, Heidi, how are you? Hey, it is great to be here. I'm doing wonderfully. I, I love this, uh, your background with all the books and stuff. This is your home office, I guess, huh? It's my home office made Zoom ready. <laughs> there you go. Um, I see that you've got a couple of copies back there of your new book, Whole Body Reset. Congratulations on the Times bestseller list. That's so awesome. And exciting. Why don't you... Um, just start off by telling us a little bit about the premise behind this book. Sure. Well, um, my co-author, Steve Prime, is uh, the editor at AARP. And what happened is it came to him as a question of, you know, what can we do? You know, the readers, there's 38 million members at AARP. And readers, members would, would write in and say, hey, I used to be thin. And now I'm not, I'm eating the same, I'm exercising the same, what's going on? And so he came to me, he's this fantastic journalist. He's been in this space forever. And, but he wanted to partner with somebody who was more of the science-based person. And so we partnered and really went to dig in to figure out the answer. And, you know, we used to think that it was metabolism, right? Everybody has heard, oh, you know, my my metabolism slows as I age. But in fact, that's not true. A landmark study came out just last year, in fact, that really blew that away. And it says that our metabolism does not slow down, that we are perfectly, our our cells are perfectly capable of still doing what they need to do. And so that's not why we gain weight as we age. What it really is about is that as we age, starting at really age 30 or 40. So this is not, you know, really seniors. I mean, there's no way I, right. I'm I'm saying like I'm 44 here and I'm feeling ancient. (laughs) Pay attention because this is true for master athletes as well. But um, so what happens is we begin to lose just the natural aging process. We begin to lose muscle every year, a little bit less than 1% a year. So that's pretty significant over time. And it's losing that muscle, which is our metabolically active component of our bodies that ends up hurting us. And so we gain weight over time because we're losing muscle. And so if we could stop losing muscle, that would help. And that's really what this is about. So what we discovered and what the science says is that as we age, what happens and you're saying, you know, hey, you're not feeling it, right? And you're still young. (laughs) As time goes on, right? You what happens is, you know, when you're 16, you drink a glass of milk, and all of that goes that, you know, eight grams of protein goes to, to building muscle, you're in a growth phase when you're young. And so we're very good at putting on muscle. But as we age, there's a thing called anabolic resistance. 
And it means our muscles are less are resistant to protein synthesis. And we need more protein and we need it more often to overcome that resistance and be able to retain the muscle we have and to put on muscle. It's so interesting because I think we are such a snacking culture now and the snacks that people reach for are, you know, if you're bad, it's like chips and cookies and popcorn or a granola bar. If you're good, it's vegetables, but none of those things are giving us protein. Well, what we found is what you really need at your meals is 25. There is a dose related, you know, we, we need to hit that amount. So it's 25 grams about, you know, for females, 30 grams for most males. And we need to hit that amount and we need to do that at each meal. And then it's great to have some protein at snacks too. So you can combine your, your snacks to have a little, you know, you, again, you can have cookies with some milk, you know, or you can have a yogurt parfait, or you can have bean dry beans or whatever. We could get into snack ideas, but the real point is that you could have, you can have some protein at your snacks, but you really got to hit this mark three times a day or more. And if you exercise more. It, so is that around, you're saying about 75 grams of protein for women and 90 for men each day, or is it more if you exercise? Yeah, it's probably a little bit more, um, uh, including snacks, but this is the thing. It's not a high protein diet. It is more protein than the RDA recommends now, which is at 0.8 per kilogram of body weight. I don't want to get into the science for, you know, general yeah. population. But so it is a little bit higher, but it is by no means a high protein diet. It's you're distributing it differently. Most people save up their protein for dinner and they'll have mm -hmm. a big portion at dinner. Like for instance, you, you might have oatmeal at breakfast and think, oh, you know, I've had this nutritious, I'm having oatmeal for breakfast, but there's not really any protein in that. So it's not until you have that with a yogurt or you have some protein powder in it with some hemp seeds or, you, you know, in some nuts. I mean, there's lots of different ways to get there, whether you're vegan, vegetarian, carnivore, flexitarian, however you want to do it. But you still need to hit that mark. So most people either they don't have breakfast or they eat breakfast, but they're not getting enough protein in. And then the same, you might have a salad for lunch and think, oh, I'm being so nutritious, you know, but it's anemic. Like there isn't enough, there's really not enough starch in there. There's not enough protein in there. Um, and so you're not hitting the mark, but then most people get there at dinner. So again, it's not high protein. It's distributing it differently. It's so interesting. So um, I, I was reading a little bit about the book and, you know, intermittent fasting is so popular right now, but you're saying this actually is not the best idea for people of this age. Right on. So in fact, there was this great study and, you know, I, and my desk is a master's I hear <laughs> About, um, last year in JAMA or two years ago already, and it looked at a control group. So definitely both groups lost weight. Eating the same number of calories, what happens is when you lose weight, you lose fat and you lose muscle. You don't lose just fat. In the control group with intermittent fasting versus the control that ate breakfast, but same calories, again, both losing, the control group maintained more muscle while they lost weight. And the intermittent fasting group that skipped breakfast, and we'll talk about that in a second, they lost actually, I think it was like 30% versus 60% muscle. So big difference. And that muscle is so valuable and hard to come by. And when we talk about intermittent fasting, there's so many different variations to that. And I'm not going to say that, you know, that it never is right for anyone under any circumstance. 
A lot of the studies in terms of brain and all of that have really are animal studies. There is something to support for some people who are metabolic resistance. But remember, there's a lot of other things at play. And like maintaining your muscle long term plays a huge role in your health and well-being. And if you eat, if you eat the way we're, we're suggesting breakfast, lunch, dinner, and eating throughout the not dieting during the day and then eating at night. If you stop eating at eight o'clock, let's say, and you go and then you don't eat after dinner and you sleep, sleep is intermittent fasting. That's a 12 hour fast right there. And Wait that, a who's getting 12 hours of sleep? I want to meet that person. <laughs> but you're not after dinner, you know, those hours after dinner is when the majority of Americans munch, right? That's yes. when you're eating the chips. That's when they sit in front of the TV and they get out the pretzels or they get out the chips or they get out the ice cream or the refrigerator surf because they're not satisfied from dinner. It's hard to put the connection together. What you eat in the morning can affect how hungry you are at night. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage you just to experiment and see if that works for you. But I almost can guarantee that it will, uh, you, it'll be easier to be satisfied with the food that you eat and not to feel like that need to constantly snack, which is different than having planned and strategic snacks. So this is a selfish question because it's directly about me, whatever, but maybe someone else can uh, identify. (laughs) Um, I have always been, I didn't know about intermittent fasting until they started talking about it a few years ago. And I was like, oh, that sort of sounds like me. I have been a default intermittent faster since I was a very little girl because my mom used to feed me before early morning hockey practice and I would throw up on the ice and the coach told her to stop feeding me. Mm -hmm. So I never ate until after that morning exercise. So what it's translated to in my old age now is that I usually do stop eating by like eight or eight 30. And then I eat after I work out the next morning around 10 ish usually. So I usually have like a 14 ish hour fast. Mm -hmm. My breakfast is a massive protein bomb. So am I doing what you're saying? Am I fasting or am I eating a good breakfast? Cause I am. Yeah, but I I mean, I don't know how far you want to go into your plan. I would recommend, you know, I think you like many athletes think if I can't tolerate what I was doing, then I can't tolerate anything. And again, I would encourage you to experiment with trying something other, you know, than a big breakfast before you work out. And that's the time to have simple carbs, like some pretzels, that's going to give you some salt, you know, and give you some energy um, because there's other reasons like cortisol, like you probably are breaking down more, but then you, you work out and you're building and we could talk about resistance training. So important. And so mm-hmm. you're eating after, and that maximizes your protein synthesis. So the, the stimulation from your, your workout, plus that your recovery, which is also your breakfast, you know, maximizes it. So I would say you're still eating breakfast. I'm assuming you go on and have lunch. You know, your day may start at your, your, your meal may start at 10 30, but then at two 30, you have yes. you know, lunch and then at 730, you're having your dinner and then you may have a snack in between. So you're still doing it. You're used to extend that's, that's a little different than trying to have a five hour, six hour window in which only you eat and restricting it in that time and really skipping meals. You just have a little bit of a different pattern. Yeah. I, I like food too much to skip meals if we're really being honest. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I want to talk a little bit. So this, this book that you wrote is for mostly people, it seems starts in the thirties, but forties, fifties, sixties, but you work a lot with, you're working with dancers at Juilliard at the school of American ballet. I'm assuming most of these are younger people. So how does the nutrition strategy change for those on earth who are not old people like me? Right. Well, um, <laughs> so, so let me say there are certainly 
think, you know, this, the whole body reset is designed for everybody, not for necessarily athletes. Although of course, master athletes still need more protein. One of the things that I'm very proud of is my work in sports nutrition and bringing the sports nutrition model to the performing artist, to the, you know, athlete um, as artist, artistic mm-hmm. athletes, say it any way you want, right? I yeah. worked with I worked with the Mets for 15 years in my younger years. I worked with the Giants for 18 years. I worked with the Knits. I mean, I'm sports nutrition is my thing, um, though now I'm aging in and into this other area. But when I, I transitioned and brought this model to the School of American Ballet and to Juilliard, and I think that there's no question that dancers, but also drama is very physical. Mm-hmm. Like vocal arts, very physical. And that really helping these artists see themselves as the athletes they are can help them reframe how they look at food and fueling, which is everything. Absolutely. So, you know, we look at things like how to eat around performance. We were talking, uh, did we just talked to you, right? About should you be fueling before you work out and the effect that it may have on your workouts, which because, you know, you, I am going to like project here, but in these artists and these athletes, what do they all have in common? You know, the, this idea that you push through, like you can even have much better you can feel because you perform no matter what you, you get, you know, you are taught that you get out there. You don't pay attention to every ache and pain. You don't even know how much better you can feel if you're properly fueled. <laughs> it affects injury rates. It affects, you know, others like bone health, especially in these young athletes, which we can talk more about, but you know, it affects every single part of your, your psychology, you know, your moods, your outlook. Um, so it's so very important. And I think bringing that model and helping them look at nutrient timing, hydration, protein, fat, carbs, supplements, you know, everything is a great, a great model for them to, to follow because they are, they are. I, I know. And, and again, I have, I've not been a dancer, Um, I know I have a lot of friends who are dancers and whose kids are dancers. And I know that they have these crazy long practices that leave them completely exhausted, both mentally and physically. But I do know that a lot of the, especially the women and the young girls who do it, they're afraid to eat because they think that they have to be skinny to be dancers. So I'm sure that you've worked to change that perception um, and make them understand that you can properly fuel and not gain bad weight Um, but how, how has that changed over your years of, um, working with these artists? I think it continues to be a challenge because we live in a diet culture world to begin with. We, so it's messages that they get, we all get from the time, you know, the the evidence will say that, you know, this is like by third grade, you know, six, seven, eight year old girls are already saying that they want to diet. Now they may or may not be changing how they actually are eating, but the idea, the notion that they think they need to eat differently and watch their weight is so sad to me. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you were right. There's a thing called the athlete triad. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Um, it is a syndrome of three interrelated um, conditions, so to speak, that or syndromes. And, and it starts with either being adequately fueled or underfueled. Once you go into what's called low energy availability, which is also the red. So it's the athlete triad or reds relative energy deficiency in sport. And the cornerstone is that when you're in low energy availability, which I'll explain more in a minute, it begins to interfere with your hormones. 
And once your hormones and many young females don't get their period, they either have delayed puberty or they don't get their period. And that has everything to do with developing bone health. And when you're young, especially you only, you reach 90% of your peak bone mass for life by the time mm-hmm. you're 20. Yeah. So it's a crucial time if you're taking in too few calories in terms of laying down the bone that you really need. So low energy, it's like, well, how can that be? How can they be in low energy availability and still be performing at this high level? Because your body is putting all the fuel that you take in toward what you're doing in the moment, but it repartitions away from other systems in your body. And so the, what low energy availability speaks to is the energy you have left. What's the energy available that's left for the other things going on in your body, like reproduction, like hormones and growth and repair. Another reason why they're at a higher risk for injury and breakdown injuries, because there's not enough left over for all of those other systems in their body. And so it can be, um, you know, inadvertent, meaning that some of these athletes, like you're saying, some of these artists, they're, they're intense. And so they're going to school and then they have practice and rehearsal and what social life and family demands and schoolwork and whatever else they have going on. If they're taking a music lesson, if there's so much, they just don't eat enough. You know, they don't like school lunch. They're not prepared with a snack before practice or rehearsal or class. And so it's sort of inadvertent. They're just not, you know, they wake up late, they don't have breakfast and it's inadvertent. They're not getting enough or it's purposeful. They're actually dieting because they think they need to be thinner and reach the this thin ideal, this thin athletic ideal. And what we know is this is every athlete, but certainly those in aesthetic sports like dance, like diving, you know, like runners isn't really the same because don't, there's not an aesthetic to it. There's just a belief system and it's not true um, that they're even at higher risk for eat, disordered eating and then eating disorders. Because, so, yeah. so when you get, when you meet a group of, of dancers, every athlete is an individual person. Obviously every dancer is individual. How do you assess what each, what each particular dancer needs? Well, it's based on, first of all, again, we have aesthetic realities to dance, but that varies drastically from, let's say a Broadway dancer or a jazz dancer, or a modern dancer, a tap dancer versus a <laughs> ballet dancer. So there's different aesthetics. Um, there's different genetics there's different belief systems around food, everyone coming with their own history, their own food preferences, but then there is height, weight, age, and what their, and what their training schedule looks like. So just like with any athlete, it's really all of those things combined to determine what their needs are. You know, we have calculations to predict and, and there's different ways to go about it. Um, and it's not really as exact as some people might think it is because our body adjusts and adapts to a lot of different factors going on in terms of output. Um, and there is only so much to do, but, but really it starts, it does start with how we think about food because it isn't really about weight, right? It can be, but most mm-hmm. often it's not because most dancers already have, like, especially where the places I work, they already have the body type or else they wouldn't be there. There's a self-selection that goes into that. So it's not, it's, often has nothing to do with what you look like. It has to do how you think you should look or your body dissatisfaction, which is very normative. You know, we engage in fat talk all the time. You know, one girlfriend, one one will say, oh, no, I'm so fat. And the other goes, oh, no, you're not fat. I'm fat. And the other goes, no. (laughs) And that goes on and on. Right. (laughs) And then, you know, that seems like we're commiserating together. We're supporting each other. 
but actually is very harmful. And one of the things it does is it makes it normative that we should be dissatisfied with our bodies. Mm -hmm. Nobody really goes and goes, oh, look at me. Don't I have great legs? Or how about how about my breast? You know, or (laughs) you know, that's not how we engage. And so making it normative for us to be dissatisfied affects how we eat. We're dissatisfied with our bodies. We think, oh, I better eat less, right? Not enough, not what I need, not to fuel, not for performance, not to get out there and shine. It's going to be only based on how I look. And it takes us further away from our goals. And so once we can see that we need to fuel our bodies, fuel our performance, shine when we get out on that stage or on that field or, you know, whatever your, your court is, your, your, your field of competition is, it's, it, it allows you, it gives you permission to eat for that reason, right? And then we can, we can tweak what's right for your, you know, what your needs are. But when you have a mindset that I don't deserve enough and it's all based on what I look like. And in fact, what happens is when athletes, you know, it may not start this way because often when somebody begins to restrict, there may be a little bit surge of performance or they get a lot of feedback. Oh, you look great. You lost weight and it goes too far. Right. And, and you begin to have those breakdown injuries, you sideline stress fractures, keeps you further away from really having the strength to develop your muscle, your power. You know, what I, what I encourage um, all my athletes and the dancers to think about is what are your functional goals? Like focus on function. How do you, you know, how are you working on your balance, on your power, on your strength, on your endurance, mental skill set, sleep, mm-hmm. nutrient timing, hydration, all the things that will take you closer to performing your best. Focusing on weight is only one very small piece of what makes you an outstanding athlete, dancer, performer. As someone who's uh, outside the dance world, but is a consumer of mainstream media, I obviously, you know, I don't know that I ever really thought about it before, but when I saw Misty Copeland and all those Nike ads looking like this fit, amazing, badass, strong woman, it really made me think of dancers as athletes. And I'm wondering if over the last decade or so that has become, you know, more acceptable and has it helped you in reaching these girls and getting them to kind of change their relationship with food? Well, first of all, let's just say it isn't just girls and even well, the, and the boys, I, that's my mistake. Sorry. <laughs> but I do want to say that because even the athlete triad isn't only women. It is true that females are more susceptible. We tend to have less to start with less muscle and, and also more women are more susceptible. Um, but, but, Male runners and cyclists all have suffered from the triad. They underfuel. It affects testosterone. It affects their, I mean, they just can't see it every month in their, you know, whether or not they're menstruating, but it does affect their bodies as well. Um, but they're not as susceptible to even within day variations and all of that. Um, so, yes, I would say that the culture shift um, and some wonderful role models out there has made it easier or um, there's just more there's just more positive modeling and that always helps the cause. But at the same time, there's more social media, there's more misinformation, right. There's to to combat against. So it's, it's always this like one step forward, one step back, you know, Um, but yes, I do think, and there's more organizations like the American college of sports medicine, which has athletes in the arts, which is really looking at, you know, sports medicine for performing artists. There's the international association of dance medicine, science, the performing arts medical association, which is really recognizing the very specific 
um, injuries and needs of performing artists and recognizing them in terms of sports medicine needs. Like, again, you know, the sport teams I work for, that model is there's this comprehensive support system around athletes and there's physical therapists and there's orthopedics and there's primary care sports docs and there's massage and there's nutrition. And, you know, we can go on in terms of that support. And I think more and more of um, more and more artists and dancers are recognizing that need for comprehensive care and support as well. What are the most common issues that you see in the diets of the athletes you work with um, beyond that underfueling problem? Well, that for sure is a is you know everything starts you know calories are king, you mm-hmm. know. So if you if you don't have calories, it doesn't really matter all of the other you know macronutrients or micronutrients you're taking in. Um, I would say still carbs is an issue. You know, people are so carb phobic. They don't understand carbs go across all food groups and the real need that that is what's, you know, again, dancers are anaerobic athletes. They're power athletes. There's certainly an endurance um, component to it and repetition and all, but basically, you know, they're not running a marathon. They're jumping and changing direction quickly. And it's all power and power is carbohydrate that fuels that. And so the depletion that goes on, not just in one day, but over time. So I think that um, erratic eating, you know, based on schedule, get really gets in the way for people. Dancers tend to, um, for those who are in school still versus performing, you know, it's like you kind of under eat during the week and overeat on the weekends to balance it out because you got to get it sometime. But I would still say probably carbohydrates that people don't understand the need and, and confuse, you know, like Twinkies and brown rice, versus <laughs> like not the same, you know, so there's again, there's this, this uh, very uh, villainizing food which we could get into a whole other thing about how, you know, moralizing this whole moral thing around food. Like I'm so bad. I ate a cookie, you know, like I'm not bad because I ate a cookie and I'm so good. Look, I'm eating carrots. Well, you know, carrots are sweet and crunchy and some, and if I pair them with hummus, they could taste good and be a satisfying snack, but I'm not like a better person because I did that. So the moralizing that goes on around food is so damaging. Yeah. Uh, Twinkies. I haven't thought about Twinkies in a really, really long time. <laughs> Why should you really? There's like <laughs> that is a food that I mean you can have it and you want it, but there's no there's nothing real. Yeah, <laughs> don't they, they? They even like fry them at the state fair. That yeah. might be a, a food I wouldn't want to moralize. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for part one of our conversation with sports nutritionist Heidi Skolnick. For nutrition tips from Heidi, or for more information on her new book, Whole Body Reset, follow her on Instagram and Twitter at at Heidi Skolnick. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production.